Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. There's just like an orgy in this dimly lit room and everyone's wearing masks and you're there with a microphone holding it into their face being like, so what's the philosophy behind what you're doing right now? And seeing a room full of 150 people, fully naked, all body sizes, just walking around eating their cheese and fucking on the side. I'm like, yes. So the dating industry is fucked. What are the most prevalent fucked issues of the dating industry and of the people that are trying to date? What's up, guys? Welcome to No Blackout Days. How we doing? I'm Evan. I'm Tim. And today we've got a two-for-one special. Yue Shu and Julie Kraftchick are here. They're the hosts of Dateable, a hugely popular dating podcast about everything from Tinder to dating during COVID. And we're going to be talking to them about dating while traveling and how to meet people on the road. Tim is uh, married with a kid on the way, so he'll just be listening intently, longing for the freewheeling single days of his youth, right? That's correct, man. I uh, I have to say, I didn't anticipate being able to add much to this conversation, but I feel like I got a good point in there. Yeah, yeah. The perspective of someone who has, as as I think you put it, has conquered the dating world is always valuable. You've 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 achieved the highest pinnacle of success. I mean, by any measurement, right? Married, has a kid on the way. Right. Well, first order of business is, as always, hot takes. And my question for you right now, Tim, is. Should those little buttons on airplane seats that recline the seats be removed? Yes, an emphatic yes. Uh, I don't think there's any way that somebody on a plane can annoy the person in front of them more than by sitting down and immediately reclining. I think it's a privilege, not a right. You know, I mean, people have abused that privilege. So I'm sorry, you get it taken away. It's just, it's not an individual decision. It's a domino effect. Like one person reclines their seat, then the person behind them has no room, so they recline theirs, and the person behind them has no room now, and it goes on and on and on, and now everyone's just a little more pissed off and uncomfortable than they were before. And for what? So the guy, the like the first guy, could recline an extra fifteen degrees, right? And the whole thing about it is is just what you just said at the end there. You're not even getting that much more room. You're just barely going back. It's not like this is some kind of a nice lazy boy recliner feel that you're giving yourself you're literally just doing it to make yourself feel good and the airlines know that this makes the experience worse yet they refuse to get rid of the reclining seat i actually think it's a really good case study for the hypothesis that humans are inherently self-interested because when you recline that seat one of two things is going through your head right number one you know that when you recline the seat it gives the person behind you less room makes them feel cramped, makes them resent you, and you just don't give a shit, and you still do it anyway. Or, number two, you're so self-absorbed that you're not even considering that the person behind you exists at all or the effect that reclining the seat has on them. Either way, incredibly selfish, and yet look how many people still do it. Right. And I think, to go back what you said about the domino effect, that's what it is. It starts with somebody, whether that somebody is a kid or somebody that hasn't flown much doing it, not under, not knowing the big picture impact of the action of reclining their seat. And then it careens because the person behind them who might not like reclining their seat all of a sudden has the angle on their screen thrown off a little bit. So they have to recline their seat to be able to watch a movie. And so then the person behind them has to do the same thing. And it just goes on and on. Yeah. Long story short, just a big fuck you to the person behind you. And I mean, the only situation where I think it should be allowed maybe is if there's nobody sitting behind you. 
So in that case, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to recline it. So maybe the maybe your button only gets activated and you're allowed to use it if there's an empty seat behind you. I don't know. Or they could just get rid of it and eliminate the entire conversation. <laughs> they could do that. Uh, all right. Next hot take. When a waiter makes a recommendation at a restaurant, do you feel obligated to take it? No, because I spent years working in kitchens and I know that the vast majority of those recommendations are just what the kitchen is trying to get rid of that night. Wow. I had no idea. That's mind blowing. Holy shit. So I always feel super obligated and not only obligated because I've, I've just asked for their opinion, but because I feel like, like they've tried all the food, they know what's good. They know what a lot of people order, like that they actually have expertise and it's like ignoring an expert's advice. So you're telling me that they're literally just trying to shove food off on people on unsuspecting diners who are minding their own business like me that are trying to unload all their slop on us. That's crazy. It's true. And in some places, the waiters will actually play a game where whoever can sell the most of X item gets like a free drink from the bar at the end of the night. Uh, but if you, if you actually want a good recommendation, pick a couple of things that you're choosing between and ask them their thoughts on those specific items, because then you'll get a real answer. It's tough though, because sometimes assuming it's all in the up and up and the waiter actually does have an opinion, it's great to get recommendations because they do know what they're talking about. But on the other hand, listening to a waiter go on and on about their favorite dish and how great it is, and then choosing something completely different feels like such a slap in the face to them. Like, <laughs> oh, you like the salmon guy who works here? Well, fuck you and your taste in food. I'm getting the steak. Fair enough, but I don't think the waiter really cares that much. That's the mistake I make. I, in my mind, like the waiter, like really cares that, that you follow their opinion. It just feels like a personal affront somehow. Almost like you've, you've sized up the waiter, evaluated whether their opinion is one you respect or not, and then rejecting their advice is some kind of referendum on them as a person. Yeah, I mean, I think you just had your world opened up a little bit as to maybe why you shouldn't ask for recommendations so often. Just go with your heart. Follow your heart. You should trademark that, Tim. I've never, uh, I've never heard that one before. Um, but okay, I'm done. It's your turn. All right. So my first one is kind of tied into today's topic. We spent a fair amount of time talking about dating apps, and so I, I can't help myself when I'm on social media, like noticing the people that change their profile photo all the time. Uh, and I'm saying this as somebody who has had the same profile photo since probably 2015. So I, I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are. Is it cool or lame to change your photo all the time? I haven't changed my Facebook profile photo since 2017. And Instagram, I just changed for the first time since I got Instagram in 2016. So I might not be the best person to ask. You did change it. I, re I forgot that, but you did. I remember thinking that when I saw it, I was like, oh man, Evan actually did something. <laughs> Many people in my life think that. Ah, ah I would actually did something for once. Yeah, it's to me, it's probably a lame reason, but like that's that's the face you're putting forward to the world if they don't look at the rest of your profile. It's just too big of a decision. I'm like, you know what? I like this photo. I think it's a good representation of me. I'm going to keep it and I'm going to keep it for as long. I'm going to write it out as long as I can. Changing it it's it's nerve-wracking for me it's like this is the this is the picture that people will see yeah if they don't like look into my profile and see anything else so i get I, it's too much pressure for me to be honest with you i'll probably leave the one i'll probably leave my current instagram profile photo up for another like nine years i don't know i don't want to i don't want to go through the uh the emotional roller coaster of changing it again right right i agree that's kind of i feel the same way like you see people that change it all the time and i just i don't i don't personally get it but yeah, I look at my like my photo on Facebook 
has been the same for years and years. And it's me in the back of a tuk-tuk in Cambodia, like careening through uh, the park outside of Angkor Wat, drinking a beer. And I, and I, I always told myself, whenever I do something that's more epic than that, I'll change my photo. Uh, and even if I have, I don't think I'm ever going to change that photo because I love that photo. And we all have like two or three photos of us that we think are like the best. And we use those on a rotation on every platform. Like Tim, you have that one that Spo took of you in Laguna Beach and you use that all the time. Like that's your, that's another one of your photos. Right. I use that for anything that I consider to be potentially professionally forward facing. So it's on my LinkedIn it's on my Instagram because we, we link to that all of the time here. And it's on my, you know, my portfolio writing website. So yes, that is like my professional photo. And then the photo of me drinking beer in a tuk-tuk is like my personal recreation photo. Yeah. And to answer your original question, when people change their, their photos all the time, I think, I don't think much of it on the surface, but if I really kind of dig down, I kind of interpret it as a sign of insecurity. Yeah. It's like, like, no, no, no. There's like people like this was, this is a good one for me. No, no, no. Next day. It, it, it sucks. I'm ugly. People hate that. No, I'm going to change it now. Like, okay, no, no, this one's good for five days. No, I'm going to change it again. People don't like it. It's not good. The angle sucks. Lighting's bad. Just take one. Be okay with it. Don't overthink it. If someone's changing their Instagram photo or their, their Facebook profile photo every week, I think like that they are insecure in how they're coming across. That's what I think. I tend to agree. That's uh, that's uh, you said it in as many words. Okay, my next question, and this one is is more along specific travel, packing. We get into packing now and then on the show, and it always tends to go down a rabbit hole. So I anticipate this might be the same. Rolled clothes or folded? Well, I only ever travel with a small backpack, and stacking clothes is really the only way to maximize space in a small backpack. I find maybe rolling is better. I've heard good things, but it would require me to completely change how I pack. And as a general rule, I hate change. So there you go. Right. So I switched to rolled uh, several years ago now, probably four or five, and it coincided with me getting a backpack that came with packing cubes, right? So rolled clothes in packing cubes is perfect. You can put a ton of stuff in there. It's easy to access. You don't even need to unzip the entire cube to get out the shirt or pair of pants that you want or whatever it is. I've tried rolling years ago with outpacking cubes in a backpack situation, and it's honestly kind of a pain because you're just reaching in there and you feel the top of everything, but you can't tell what it is unless you pull it out and look at it. So packing cubes are essential if you're going to roll. I think rolling is the better way to go, but you got to have those cubes. What are packing cubes again for all the non travel nerds out there packing cubes are just basically little zippered pouches um that are you know you can basically turn it it's like a portable drawer is what it is and but how does that give you more room like why why, why do i have to put anything in a packing if cube? you're folding things it's not going to fit to the contours of the packing cube but when you roll things you can kind of bend them in a way or roll them tighter or looser depending on how much room you need and how much room you have but why do I need packing cubes at all? Like, why do I have to fit anything to this packing cube? Why do, why can't I just like eliminate the packing cube? The packing cube seems like a middleman. Cut out the middleman. Just put it right in my bag. Well, because rolling clothes minimizes wrinkles. But that's fine. You can roll it and put it in your bag. Why do I need a packing cube? But because, as I just explained, if you roll clothes in a backpack with a top, you're kind of feeling around in there and you can't necessarily see what it is. But if you have them in a packing cube, you take the cube out, you can grab what you want, you can kind of compare and contrast and put it back. It's like having a drawer with you on the road. 
Okay, I understand how packing cubes are good for organization. I just don't know that they are good at saving you space because you're adding, you're literally adding another piece of luggage into your already existing luggage that has to take up room. A little bit of room. That's why I'm yes. saying it's the middleman. You're adding luggage within your luggage. And for a guy that, like me that just travels with a backpack, I can't afford to add three packing cubes that are going to take up space. Yeah, I mean they don't take up a ton of space themselves, but yeah, if you're if you're already at the brim of capacity, they might not be the best thing for you. It's more of a all-encompassing thing. All right, Tim. Well, you're a roller. High roller Tim, they call him in Colorado. And we are going to roll right into this interview with UA and Julie. We'll see you guys on the other side. UA Shu and Julie Krafchik are the hosts of the Dateable podcast, which has been featured in the New York Times, CNN, and named one of the top 10 dating podcasts by the Huffington Post. They're here with us to talk about meeting people on the road, and we can't wait to dive right in. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Yes, Woo! we are so excited to be here. <laughs> We're excited to talk about this because it's a subject that comes up a lot as we discuss travel and different aspects of the travel industry and people who work remotely and travel all the time and how do you how do you meet people on the road so first of all before we get really deep into it i want to ask you how you guys are considered dating experts how do you reach a point when you can confidently say yeah i'm a i'm a dating expert i've mastered this like how what what is that what is that point it's a very good question. We don't actually, so it's really funny. We don't call ourselves dating experts. It's what the media calls us. I think it's yeah. just an easier way to refer to us. <laughs> okay. We refer to ourselves as dating sociologists because I think that's more about research and observation and also being an active participant as we all are. We're probably all dating sociologists, but I think you get to a point where you're a dating expert is when you call yourself that. <laughs> yeah, I think also, you know, like at this point, we've been doing our podcast for coming up on six years, and we've talked to thousands and thousands of people and experts themselves. And I think that's helped, you know, solidify certain trends and what we're seeing. So at that point, we felt more confident calling ourselves dating experts. Right. And it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, you say you're a dating <laughs> expert, then people are like, hey, these girls know what they're talking about. And, right? and, hey, and you do. So... <laughs> How soon, when you guys are on dates yourselves, how soon do you tell people that you're, that you host a dating podcast? Does that kind of make more tension in the air? It's kind of like going to a dinner party and telling the host that you're a chef, right? Because then they're like, okay, you're going to scrutinize everything I'm cooking and you're probably going to observe my kitchen etiquette. But in the reality of things is that everyone who's an expert in their field is also an an observer and they learn from other people. So when I was dating and telling people I had this dating podcast, I would caveat with that and say, I'm also observing. I'm not here to do, I'm not here to um, tell stories on my dating podcast. And it's a good thing that on our show, we don't really talk much about our personal lives. It's really about our guests. Exactly. That's how we feel too, actually. We, we were like, no one wants to hear about us and our travel stories. No one gives a <laughs> shit. No one knows us. They, I mean, they do give a shit, but you want to... You or or our dating lives. They don't care about that either. They do though. That's the thing. 
this might be controversial, but I feel like we are, I guess, quote unquote experts, but I think both of us think the dating industry is fucked. And that's like what got us into this in the first place. I think like UA, you know, saw the inside out of kind of the detrimental side of dating coaching. And I definitely read like my share of like the rules type books. And I feel like that just never got you to where you wanted to with authentic relationships. And honestly, that was a big catalyst for us in starting this podcast. Kind of on that note, you know, the, so the dating industry is fucked. What are the most prevalent fucked issues of the dating industry and of the people that are trying to date? Like what, what are the things that people want you to teach them? Well, that is, first of all, the dating industry has to make money. And how do they make money is that they have to keep you in the system. They got to keep you in the dating world, right? If you're, if you're in a relationship, right. then they get no money from you. So all the apps obviously want to keep you on the apps. Single. And all the dating workshops and consultants and coaches, they want to keep you coming back. They're not trying to solve your issues. So what ends up happening is that you, you get a lot of clients in the industry who want hacks, they want shortcuts, they want things like, how do I, how do I get this girl to sleep with me by, you know, just talking, like mm -hmm. texting her? What's a text I can send that could be a shortcut to getting this person? And that's, you know, we live in a world of instant gratification. And of course, people want to pay for that. But they also know, Tim, you can attest to this, love, relationships, it's a long game. And <laughs> there are no shortcuts and hacks. So elaborating on that, that's why I would imagine you could confirm this, that the most successful dating apps are actually one night stand apps. That's a pretty bold theory. Yeah, probably. Well, I think it's people that attract a poly community are the most successful dating apps, because even when they find a person, they continue to look for more people. We'll give you a good example. This is a thing. Uh, dating apps are like Yelp. People post reviews when they're not happy. So with the apps that are actually successful at helping you find a partner, nobody talks about them because nobody's like, oh, my gosh, guys, I found my partner on Match.com. But if you got fucked on Tinder, if you got fucked on Bumble, that's all over the Internet. So in our Facebook community, the apps we hear the most about are the ones that people are complaining about. So I actually kind of have a differing opinion. I don't think the apps are what's fucking the dating industry. I actually am pro apps. I met my partner on a dating app. And I think we've talked to, you know, dating founders from dating app founders before. And they were saying, you know, like a successful interaction is actually super valuable to us because it means that there's word of mouth and we're going to get more people signing on to the app. Maybe even like Disney kind of fucked us in the sense that it like had these notions of that you'll just be saved by another person and once you find the person I guess it's all romantic comedies that everything is smooth sailing after so I think what's happened is that as soon as there's a road bump in a relationship people are quick to the next thinking that it's a problem with the relationship but the reality is that there's going to be problems in every relationship conflict is inevitable of course it can be in waves of how big that conflict is but to think that you're going to have zero fights zero conflict is just an illusion are you telling me that the romantic comedies are not what i should expect that in my life i mean Evan, you can believe whatever you want right if you want the happy that's not what i came here for this isn't, this isn't why i had you, this is not why i had you guys on to, to do this to me I we, give up. <laughs> sorry to burst your bubble didn't mean to <laughs> what do you think how about this what do you what do you think about uh meeting people on airplanes because I, mm. I wrote a um 
I wrote an article about this recently called Meeting People on Airplanes is Bullshit. And how like romantic comedies particularly like have this idea that this 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 classic romantic moment that everyone has that like mm. you get on a plane is like a 70 percent chance you're gonna meet your soulmate sitting next to you and i've flown hundreds of times never once met anyone remotely interesting on a plane and <laughs> i don't know what, what do you guys think oh i have so much to say about that a few years ago maybe six or seven years ago they tried to do a dating app for airplanes they try to match you and sit you next to someone single and it flopped. I forget the name of the business, or maybe it was an offshoot of one of the airlines. But the reason is because anything, when you put a dating context to it, people get really strange about it. Like dating events, singles events, speed dating. Weird. You attract yeah. the creepiest of creeps. <laughs> and nobody wants to be in that context. So everyone's looking for their serendipitous moment of sitting next to someone who just happens to be single, available, and attracted to you. But what if you're not? You're stuck with them for how, however many hours on this plane. So it is a notion that I think, you know, to Julie's point, you can find people anywhere and dating apps is one venue. And same with airplanes is also another. But the thought of meeting your soulmate on an airplane is definitely a Hollywood idea. And those with the app there. So there's always the classic image of, okay, you're on a blind date or, a, you know, you meet somebody that you met on an app and you're at dinner and it's going terribly and you excuse yourself to the bathroom and you bounce. If you do that on a plane, you're pretty much just sitting in a laboratory for like three hours. You yeah. know? Like there's no escape. I feel like talking to someone on a plane is definitely a mixed bag. I've definitely experienced it, even not from a romantic setting, but just, you know, initiating that convo. And then as the convo keeps going, you're like, all I want to do is watch a movie or read a book right now, but this person won't freaking stop talking. But at the same time, if you're having that connection, it can be amazing. So it is kind of a coin flip. It's opening Pandora's box because if you're sitting there yes. next to someone for six <laughs> hours and you start talking to them, with the hope that, you know, it might turn into something or they look interesting. And then they're, it's like gouging out your eyeballs, having a conversation with them. You're stuck next to that person for six hours, but you can just sit there, eyes forward, watch your movie, chill, not take the risk. So I don't know. It's a risk reward. I, I once had a date on a plane. It was an entire, no, I, I'm going to backtrack. I once had a relationship on a plane ride. I ran into someone I knew at the Boston airport and we were on the same plane back to LA and he requested to sit next to me. This is someone I kind of knew peripherally. And in the six hours back to LA, it started out as flirtations, attraction. And then in the middle of the ride, he took his shoes off. And I was like, this is really disgusting. So our relationship started to decline. <laughs> and then he started getting drunk and he was getting a little belligerent. And the last two hours of the plane ride, it was absolutely fucking miserable. Oh my God. And he leaned in for a kiss and I slapped him. So we had an entire relationship <laughs> from the initial courtship to the ultimate breakup. Because when we got to LA, I was like, I never want to see you again. I don't know. This seems like the ultimate form of speed dating. I feel like you always hear from people that the best ways to, you know, see if you're compatible is travel or going to a supermarket or going to Ikea. That one always comes up. But so I think there's some premise of that's good with these that they bring out sides of you that might take months and months and months to actually see. I saw a stat once, I think. So I'm just going to repeat it here as scientific fact that Survivor has produced more successful couples than The Bachelor. Oh. And that makes sense to me, actually, because in I a situation where you're living in unforgiving conditions in close quarters where you're hungry and tired all the time, 
much like an airplane, right. it's a good way to get to know someone at their worst and really put that relationship through the fire. We should sell it as a reality show. It's a reality travel show. It's gonna be called. It's gonna be called Flying Flings. Or crash landing. <laughs> crash other? and burn. Yeah. Well, it's you see, you learn so much. Like you see what they order to drink. You see how they eat a meal. You see how they hold conversations in an awkward setting. Like you really see these people like on the spot. Yep. You know? So I, I want to go back to uh, the dating app thing. I think that's how we got on here. And so you said that the the, the good apps, the apps that people that actually work for people, don't get as much love as the apps that don't, that keep you in the loop. What apps do work for people? Everyone knows the basics, the Tinders and Hinges and Bumbles. What, so what apps work more for people that people don't hear about? I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily an app works for you or it doesn't. I personally think it's who you are on the app. We see so many people that just get so fixated on the app dynamics that they spend way too much time overanalyzing profiles and first messages and prompts and all this stuff that they just kind of get sucked into like how the app is working for them in our opinion is a much better way to approach it is to just treat it as another mechanism that you're meeting people similar to a plane it's just another way to meet people so i think there are different apps that that tend to have different kind of connotations with them like Tinder, for instance, has a hookup connotation. We're not going to deny that. That doesn't mean, though, that you can't meet someone wonderful on Tinder. But I think it's it's the headspace you're in and the filtering mechanisms that you're using and the like how you're accessing um, you know conversations. But that being said, there are some apps that are more like relationship focused. So if you're looking for that, like I personally have had really good luck on Hinge. That's been my app of choice. But I think ultimately it's like, what app do you not despise using that you're going to use consistently? And then how are you going into using the app? Those are what's going to make you successful or not. So you guys aren't out here slinging Christian Mingle or like farmersmeet.com as the best dating services that people just aren't using <laughs> an untapped singles market on uh dairy farms in rural america yeah if, if there was a secret we would have used it a long time ago so one of tinder's biggest features is the passport feature which i mean you have to pay for i guess but mm -hmm. you can set your location to another country and start swiping in bulgaria if you want so how do you take advantage of that and do it correctly? Because if I set myself to Bulgaria in advance of taking a trip there and I want to like set up a date for, you know, like a week from now, how do I explain away the fact that I am clearly swiping, paying the swipe from thousands of miles away and probably not looking for something serious without lying or coming off as an asshole to that person who matches with me? So I actually did an experiment at the start of COVID. Oh, yeah, that's right. I remember in, that. At the start of COVID, all these apps were making it free to use, like the travel anywhere. And I think in general, during COVID, people were more receptive, at least at the start. I don't know what the current take is now that people are meeting in real life more. But at the start, I think people were more open to expanding their geos. 
And I wanted to test also, just like we hear all the time from people that it's my location. That's what's keeping me single. Mm -hmm. There's no good people in my location. No one wants to settle down, whatever. The apps are terrible in my location. That's what we hear. So I wanted to see if it felt different in different locations. So I guess your first question is, how do you like not show that you're 6,000 miles away? Maybe it's using a non-location app because I use Tinge and you could just move your location into a specific neighborhood even and it showed up that you were there like there was no geo from it so sneaky. So maybe that's step one I don't know I haven't used tinder passport so I don't know how it like redistributes if it still shows that you're that many miles away or if it does something similar but what I I think there was a few things that I learned from this experiment I think first of all there were not huge noticeable differences in different places like there were all you know, there were quirks, I guess, to each one. So it was that there were some differences. Like I think dating shows up differently in every city, but the underlying challenges don't go away depending on your city. And mm -hmm. I think the other thing that was interesting was I did start to feel some guilt, like UA was saying. Like I had a few people message saying really nice things. And, you know, like I, it, I did feel like I was leading people on by having them be part of an experiment. So I think it is like being honest with what you are trying to do here and how do you like get on the same page with someone. But I think it is a good opportunity, especially if you're in a state of remote living or you're just unsure what your next move is. So what cities did you set yourself to? Ooh, a lot. Chicago. Chicago yeah, I was in DC? London. London was my favorite. Um, so that I did, I tried to do Sicily, which was really interesting because you go anywhere. And I kept coming <laughs> into people that like they were all, um, expats, expats US expats. Yeah. I was like, why is everyone from New Jersey and Sicily? Like what's going on? So where did you um, have your, the best luck? Was it London? Australia. I just felt like men were super aggressive. Like they were just mm. like really like reaching out much more than in the U.S. I think I actually noticed more differences going from different countries than to different cities in the U.S. UA and I have also had this mystery on Philly that yes. <laughs> we've heard from people before that Philly is one of the worst places to date. And again, like I'm sure everyone has different opinions, but I will say when I did go to Philly, I had... I had less attraction to people I was swiping on. And I still, to this day, cannot pinpoint why that is the case. Mm -hmm. But we've heard it from multiple people. So Philly. <laughs> Philly, Philly, don't go there. Ugly guys. <laughs> terrible for dating. You heard it from the experts. Philly, worst dating city in the country. I don't think it's just guys. UA had friends that would like travel to New York to date that lived in Philly. It's not, it's just, there's something in the water there. And we, we need to take a trip there to yes. get to the bottom of it. Yes, yes. Interesting. So what what are the regions then where you found people are more open to meeting people, they're more easy to get along with on a first date? What are where are the places to date in your experience and in your in your listeners experience? I'm curious as to what your guests and listeners think too. I mean, honestly, if once you're an expat in any country, it's easy to date because you yourself have this open energy about you. And you're different. You're, it, yes, you're very different. And also on the dating apps virtually, when you are new to a city, you are considered fresh meat in that city. So apps actually mm -hmm. prioritize your profile. And that's why we have this misconception that, oh, I'm getting more matches in the city when it's actually the apps just pushing you out more. They're promoting you more because you're fresh meat. I personally believe that the cities that are 
easiest to date in or the most open to dating are um, the major the major big cities from all over the world because they see international tourists and they're just open to that. But a city like London that is just so transient and has so many so many different backgrounds there. Nobody's really different in London because everyone's different. So I've had lots of friends who have great experience dating in London because just in one city, you can date someone from Spain, Morocco, somewhere in Asia. It's just you get like the whole gamut and everyone's there to open to meeting all kinds of different people. I don't want I don't want to hear this. I was like 10 seconds away from moving to London like earlier this month and I decided not to. Oh, shoot. It's never too I late. Mean, the thing is, though, anytime, I think what UA kind of touched on, it's the mindset of you going in. Like if you had moved to London, you could have moved probably to any place and you would have been fresh. You would have been ex- like curious. You would have been exploratory. Those are what makes people have good luck in dating. If there was a silver bullet city, we would all move to it. I don't think there is a silver bullet city. I think it's what you make of it in your city. We hear of people all the time blaming their city, but then they can point to like 10 examples of people that have happy, healthy relationships that live in their exact same city. Right. It's not about the city. It's about themselves. And you get, no, if you're in your absolutely. hometown, you get lazy and complacent. Totally. And you go to a new place. You're like, hey, I'm here. I want to take full advantage of it. I don't know anybody like I'm ready to meet people. Yes. And it's like your mindset completely shifts. A hundred. And you would percent. date people that you would normally date at home. It's like the tourism mentality. Whenever I travel, I buy the dumbest souvenirs because I'm like, I need this magnet. But you would never buy that at home in your own city. It's the same thing when you date because you're just more open to it. And you feel like you just want to meet everybody and experience everything. Yeah. And the ratios are interesting in cities. Mm. Like There are certain cities that have more men or more women, right? There's known quantities of that. But what we've seen is that the ratio can almost backfire sometimes for people because they get so in their head about the ratio. Like we've heard people in San Francisco, men saying, oh, well, you know, there's just a zillion men here. Women have it so easy. They can have whatever. But then they that just causes them not to like step it up and try. But when every person is doing that, then that leads to a bad dating environment. So I think people need to kind of get out of this mindset. Of course, if it's such a bad ratio, you're not setting yourself up for success. But there's not really that many cities that are like that bad of ratio that you cannot meet another human being. Maybe Alaska, but outside of Alaska. (laughs) Alaska, for sure. (laughs) I mean, I would even say like, I I, I went to college in a ski town, which ski towns are notorious for being, you know, heavily men populated. Yep. And everybody brought that up constantly the entire time I lived there was that, oh, yeah, there's like four men to every woman here. We, you know, our chances of finding our partner here are, are very, very low. But nobody that I knew had problems dating like everybody no. dated. And it's just I don't know. I've always thought of that as a very bad excuse for not being able to find a partner. Well, we they, we hear about Memver all the time in like Denver, right? There's just the man overload, but then it makes people like lazy. And I guess people just don't make plans. Like there's a known kind of complacency in Denver that we've heard. So we had a, one of our listeners that's considering moving to Denver. He was heading out that way. And I'm like, you just need to do 10% more than the average person, make the dates, make the plans, and you're going to stick out and you're going to thrive. So I think it's looking at your 
city that you're in and what are the common perceptions and how do you just get 10% better than the average person? Tim defy the odds. Hey, I met my wife in Denver. There you so. go. Case in, point. Yeah. Case in point. When you're traveling, you're always, and you're meeting people on the road, whether it's, uh, I, I guess, say you're traveling for a brief period of time. Say you're going away for a week or two. Uh, you're going to be in a new city, a new country. This could apply to studying abroad as well um, and being somewhere for maybe a semester. But when you meet somebody, there's kind of an implicit understanding that it's it's probably not going to be long term. That if you're on this brief trip, you meet someone on Tinder, you're leaving in like a few days, but you still want to get that date. You still want to go out with someone and have that experience. How is the responsible way to handle that? Because I think when most people hear like, okay, this guy's here for two or three nights. He wants to meet up for drinks at like 10 p.m. tomorrow what what realistically can this possibly be except a one-night stand? Even though you're there temporarily, it doesn't mean that it's just a one-night stand, actually. We've heard many stories of people meeting on the road, and then when they come home, they realize, that is the person for me. I had a friend who met someone in Cambodia. He was there traveling. He's from Paris. She's from the U.S., North Carolina. And they had a fling, went back to their respective cities, decide they were in love and then they moved to Paris together and now they're married with two kids so anything is possible I, th I think we put so much pressure on this like let's establish what I'm looking for and let's establish that you know this is this may be long term or may not be long term what if you just establish that I'm here with an open mind anything could happen and if you're along for that ride let's create some great experiences together yeah that's probably the healthy way to look at it from my experience, I could tell a brief story. Please do. Uh, <laughs> this was around the time when um, Tinder first came out. Well, I, I not first came out, I guess, but when I first started using it. So the whole world of dating apps was a bit weird to me. I was doing my master's degree in Scotland, and I was only there for a year, and I wanted to just have fun and travel and not have too many obligations. So a few months in, I matched with this British girl on Tinder, and she lives two and a half hours away by train. She had just been visiting uh, my city for a day, so that's how we matched. And we chatted for a bit, hit it off really well. She floats the idea after we'd been talking for maybe like two weeks of me taking the train down to see her and being her date for a Halloween party. Oh. And that kind of mm -hmm. shook me for some stupid reason. Like I had this mindset that Nothing in Scotland was going to be permanent, and I wasn't going to get attached to anyone, and not to self-psychoanalyze, but maybe I already felt myself getting attached, and going to see her would have solidified that. And before I knew it, I'd be taking the train down every weekend to see this girl that wouldn't have time for anything else. These were the dumb and irrational places my head was taking me to. So I made some excuse for why I couldn't go see her. We kept talking. I kept making excuses. Long story short, we never met up. It's now five years later, like right now. We still talk from time to time. Mm. And for various reasons, it's probably never going to happen. She moved even farther away from the UK. But mm. the point is, that is definitely one of my biggest social regrets. Because in hindsight, I should have just gone down there, not be an idiot and overthink it. Whole thing, now that I'm saying it all out loud, sounds completely ridiculous. 
We should call her up. Julie, we should have her on our we show. Should. We should. call we her should. up. Get her side I of like the story. It. What's been going on for the last five years. <laughs> this is a dateable episode happening. Yeah, bring them back together. Like, let's get the happy ending But you going. know what? This is... We had an episode just like this recently about one of our guests. He is perpetually on the road. Like, he is that, you know... Um, nomadic. Oh my God, what? Nomadic. Yeah, it was like the word just escaping. The nomadic lifestyle before like people were doing this with COVID and all this. He's always been nomadic. And he actually had the realization that a lot of the reasons why he was drawn to the nomadic lifestyle was because he was actually avoiding intimacy. So I think some of it might have just been where you were at that stage of your life, too. The fact that you were saying, I viewed this as, you know, my year of, you know, nothing's going to be serious and I'm just going to explore. Like, I think that's where I'm not disagreeing with what UA said. I think anything is possible. You can always meet that person. But I do think it's the two people coming together. And sometimes when you're on travel, you're in that exploration mindset. You're not in this, like this is my person, I'm going to settle down and do this thing mindset. Of course, it can happen. But it's it's probably where you were more than where you were in your head more than you were physically. Yeah, I've been there for a month. I was like, we got along so well. And I was like, I don't want to like, lock myself down only one month into the experience. And that was I think my mindset. But all right, we can move on. I don't want to do my own personal therapy session here. So <laughs> and the fact that you're but the, the fact that you're still talking about her and you have these regrets means that she made a bigger impact than you originally thought. And part of something that Julie and I really believe in is self-fulfilling prophecies and how that can really deter us from love. Because what if you just have this notion in your mind that this is never going to work out or this is not going to, this could, this is impossible. Then of course it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not going to work out that way. So sometimes we just have to step back and think, how do I get these preconceived notions out of my mind and just go in with a much more open mind and open heart? I think, hey, it's only like 3 a.m. on her side of the world now. Let's call her up. We'll get her to- Let's uh... call her. Why not? <laughs> that, would either, that would either get me the closure I need and a ton of peace of mind, or it would be one of the most publicly embarrassing and emotionally <laughs> scarring things I've ever done. There, there's no in between, really. I think we should do it. Yeah, I mean, maybe even if she's not like your person, like maybe it, it she was there for a reason. And next time this happens, you'll go into it differently. Next time this happens, you think I'm going to get myself into this situation again? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's like you said, just go into these things with an open mind and that's it. Yep. But yeah, and I want to circle back real quick before we go on to whether I guess as a dating coach, UA or as, on your podcast now, do you have people kind of asking you questions uh, about that deal with different cultural backgrounds, like dealing Absolutely. with issues stemming from cultural differences with them and their partner. Always, always. Being Asian that I am, I had a lot of clients who wanted to date Asian women and they didn't know how to get past the Asian cultural barriers with the family and, and et cetera. So I dealt with a lot of that. I also did a lot of coaching in Beijing with expats who wanted to date locals or even marry locals. And across the board of everybody I've seen who are trying to get past these cultural barriers, one thing that rings true is that America is very hookup centric. We are sort of like the only country that has a culture that accepts the hookup culture. And we sort of see monogamy as 
the next step after hooking up. But every other country, mostly all the other countries, are very monogamous. So you meet someone at a bar, you make out, and then you only focus on that person. Maybe you're not in a relationship, but you only hook up with that person until it doesn't work out and then you move on. So the cultural differences of Americans dating in any other country is that they can't, the the other party can't fathom the fact that you're also seeing other people. There are other people in your life. It just, they cannot get over that. They can, They consider that um, deceiving. They consider that almost like cheating, even though you haven't established a relationship. So I find that super interesting is that that's a major point of contention for a lot of people dating cross-culturally. I, I have a question on that. And it kind of, it's, I mean, it's a completely different topic, but it kind of builds on what you were saying about America's refusal to commit and that being part of the culture. I'm wondering what, what are your thoughts on polyamory? Cause I've watched two friends go through horrendous experiences in polyamorous relationships. <laughs> and I, I, I've never tried it or had any experience with it, but my experience watching people that are very close to me deal with the stresses of and the anxieties of that has completely ruined it for me. Well, I think, I mean, we have actually, I mean, neither of us are polyamorous, so we're only speaking from the view of people that we've talked to, but we have had people that are, you know, in the poly community on our podcast, UA and I went to a sex party that was primarily poly based and we interviewed a lot of people there, only people that wanted to, of course, and a lot of the stories, it was interesting, stemmed from people that had met in college or early in life. And instead of breaking up, they use this as an opportunity to like also have the experiences of being with other people and like preserving their relationship at the same time. Again, I'm not going to say that it's good or bad. I think so much of it depends on the couple and what's involved, but I do think it needs to be both partners that are bought into this. What you were just describing that one was kind of going along with it because the other wanted to, I think that's when it becomes incredibly problematic. And is it really possible that two people can want it at the same level? I'm not sure. Like, I'm not positive if that can actually happen. But I think for it to work, I think both people need to be like, this is good for our relationship. This is what we want. It can't be one person dragging the other into it. So how does an interview at a sex party work? <laughs> because I'm imagining like there's just like an orgy in this dimly lit room. And everyone's yes. wearing masks and you're there with a microphone, like holding it into their face being yes. like, so like, what's the philosophy behind what you're doing right now? Let's just say you and I were not the most attractive people there with like all our sound equipment on. <laughs> And all of our clothes on, too. Exactly. There you go. We were fully clothed. Yeah. It was an eye-opening experience because that community is so open to talking. We had people lining up to be interviewed. And uh, we went into the different rooms while people were fucking and talking to us at the same time. We had one woman who was literally getting, like, eaten out and then being like, hey, girls, are you having a good time? You know? it's it, They're so open and I personally felt like it was a life-changing experience because, you know, being someone who's sometimes like, I don't know if I can be secure enough to be naked. Yeah. And seeing a room full of 150 people fully naked, all body sizes, like just walking around, eating their cheese and fucking on the side. I'm like, yes, go you, you do you. What I will say, something to chew on is this. I believe everything is a phase. Everything's a phase. Nothing is permanent. 
monogamy is a phase, polyamory is a phase, love is a phase, and you go through these phases. So some people will choose and say, monogamy is not right for me right now. I will choose polyamory until it's not right for me. And then I'll go back to monogamy. So there's no way we can say, oh, polyamory truly works or it doesn't work. Just like how we can't say monogamy truly works or not. But to navigate the different phases with your partner, you have to communicate so much. And that is something we learned a lot from the poly community is their communication is on point. Every day they're communicating. They share Google Calendar. They're always aligned. The radical alignment of that community is something the monogamy, monogamous people can really learn is that there's no guesswork. Isn't like, does this person like me? Should I text this person back? Are we in a relationship? No, there's no guessing because you ha everything has to be so clear and out on the table. That's funny because I think that community is one that a lot of traditional couples would turn up their nose at in judgment, yet mm -hmm. those poly couples are probably in much more stable communicative relationships than yes. most traditional couples. Absolutely. I, we had a guest that we had on a, our show. We talked about like, is monogamy a thing of the past? And she basically said like a poly relationship and a monogamous relationship are, sh they in theory should be the same, except one, you're fucking other people. Like the communication and all that, like that should not be like exclusive to poly relationships, exclusive to monogamous relationships. Like those are just relational skills that every type of couple needs. Well, with that, I think we'll get into our final segment, which is listener questions. Ooh. That's just, uh, we source a bunch of questions from listeners about uh, topics that are related to our guest, and we'll have you answer one that we've chosen. So today's question Ooh. is, I work remotely and find it really tough to meet people. I don't have built-in contacts at work or work-related social events in person. So aside from going out every single weekend, how does a remote worker make connections with new people? This is this is a real issue and I think remote work is offers a lot of opportunity but I think the social element of work is missing. I would say it's going to be extra effort but see how you can leverage your work situation too. I think historically people did make connections at work, friendships, they go for happy hour post work. Are there ways that you can still do that in a remote world? I don't think it's as easy because you're not just like sitting next to someone asking to go out after work, but can you set up time where you get introduced to them under a more personal setting as like a coffee chat or something and can that or maybe you set up like a slack channel of you know social events that you can do in the park or socially distanced in a way that you know could work in this world so I think it's not being afraid to be creative and come up with other ways that you can like build in that social nature that is one of the benefits of working at a company that we might have lost in this remote world. And case in point is we have a robust and thriving Facebook group called Love in the Time of Corona by the Dateable <laughs> Podcast that we started at the beginning of COVID for a lot of our listeners who felt very isolated in their homes and they wanted connection. Fast forward to a year and a half later, two years later, why don't I can't keep track. We had a large group of our listeners from this community fly to San Francisco two weeks ago to meet in person for the first time after speaking and connecting virtually for over a year. 
And what this proves is people want a sense of community. But something that's really dangerous about remote work is that we're a product of routine. So if your routine is not to be social and to be isolated, you just dig yourself into that hole. What our Facebook group, group has proven is that you have to get in the routine of socializing. And that could mean virtual socializing, finding virtual groups, because once your brain becomes more social in whichever way, you're meeting new people, you're talking to new people, it preps you to meet new people in real life. And it actually makes you more motivated to meet new people in real life. And that could be as simple as walking down the street and smiling at a stranger. That is some some sort of connection. Or going into a coffee shop and saying hi to someone there. It's just prepping your brain and our and our way of doing things in a way that's more social. Well, that's encouraging. I thought that it was. I thought people would emerge from the pandemic in one of two ways. Either they would be so over the moon happy to be social again that they would be going out every single night, or they would be so used to their little hobbit holes that yeah. they would never want to. It'd be tough for them to shake that social rust off and actually mm -hmm. emerge into a social world again. So I'm still not sure which way it's swinging, actually. I don't know. I think, though, the pandemic has also allowed us to appreciate more simple things. Like, I think if you propose going to the park with people that you either met, let's say it was from your workplace and you put up some event in Slack or wherever to kind of facilitate that, or maybe it's an online community if you don't have a workplace that lends that or you don't want to hang out with work people. I think people are more receptive to stuff like that nowadays than they maybe were before the pandemic because it became the thing to do. I mean, I'm, I'm on the record as thinking that co-working spaces are bullshit and absolute scams hate co-working spaces but after the pandemic is over Why? oh i could go on for hours <laughs> I, uh but yeah after the pandemic i was like you know what i'm gonna join a co-working space like it might be a good way to meet other remote workers like it might be like a good way to you know connect with people pretty much confirm my opinion i still think they're scams <laughs> but i was like you know what this is my this is my little period of growth yes Maybe there's a Facebook group or some other sort of thing for remote workers. Like I think there, I think what I've gathered from this is it just takes more being more proactive in today's world. It's not as easy as it maybe once was that you could just turn to your coworker and go to happy hour right after work. It takes you wanting to do it more. Yes, but we have to take advantage of remote work. You can work mm -hmm. from anywhere. That's what that means. Yeah. So instead of being in your home to do the remote work, change up your scenery. My fantasy is to become friends with three other people who live in cities that I love, who also do remote work. And throughout the year, we rotate. We change homes. Next next quarter, I'm in this city. And the next quarter, I change. And we just all use each other's homes because when you change up your scenery you change up your vibe and your energy yes yeah it came full circle to what we were saying about earlier travel <laughs> <laughs> well on that note thank you guys so much for coming on dateable podcast where can people find you and listen to you guys pretty much you know any podcast player apple podcast spotify they can go to datablepodcast.com at datablepodcast on instagram you know we're we're everywhere everywhere perfect find it listen to them subscribe thanks again guys thanks for having us thank you okay we're here in the news of the day section after a nice chat with the dateable girls thank you so much to them for coming on 
Here in this section, Evan and I discuss uh, current travel news posted on Matador Network. And the first thing we're going to talk about today is a J.D. Power study disclosing the highest-ranked airports in America. And the two most high-ranking airports in America, according to Traveler Satisfaction, are Miami International Airport and Louis Armstrong New Orleans International Airport. Uh, I have thoughts on both of these, Evan, but I'm curious what your initial reaction to hearing that is and what your favorite airport is. My initial reaction is who decides these things? It's like Yelp, right? I mean, the only people that go on Yelp that really take the time to fill out surveys are people who are dissatisfied. So it seems to me that no one is having a really good airport experience, getting out on time, having a nice meal, and then like sitting down and filling out a survey about how great their airport was. So I tend to distrust these surveys in general. But what are your thoughts, Tim? Here's my thoughts on Miami Airport. Actually, I, I like the Miami International Airport. My thoughts, the first time I ever went there, I've been through it a few times. The first time I went there, my first thought was, wow, this place is like a mall. It is iconically Miami, the entire airport. It's lined with luxury shops. Uh, it is very convenient. You can train everywhere. It's easy to access from the city center. So I do understand that. And it also connects to a ton of Caribbean destinations and a ton of international places. So Miami doesn't surprise me so much. The New Orleans Airport... I flew through a couple of years ago, and I honestly wasn't a huge fan. And I think the main reason for that was because the Wi-Fi was terrible. And that is probably the number one thing that I rank an airport on, other than whether or not my flight is on time. But yeah, I, I wasn't super impressed with the New Orleans airport. I mean, the one thing I'll say about the New Orleans airport, the one time I flew out of there or into there, was that I was very disappointed that... When I arrived, I wasn't showered with Mardi Gras beads and topless women and just parades and floats and people drinking in the terminals and by the gates. I, I just that was my for my whole life growing up. That's my perception of what New Orleans is. And I, you know, you land in, New, in Vegas, what greets you but slot machines in the uh, in the terminals. That's true. When you land in New Orleans, what greets you but the same surly desk agents that greet you everywhere. Right. Right, yeah, it doesn't have the same vibe as landing in uh, Maui or Vegas, for sure. Uh, it's more of a normal major city airport. But uh, that's those are the two ranked ones. I, If I had to choose one, and you know, I, I'm most familiar with Denver International Airport on the airports of this level, but I don't know that I would pick that as my favorite one. I really like the San Francisco airport. It's, uh, it's, it's engaging. It's fast. You literally walk right into the door, and if you don't have to check a bag, you can be in the line for security in two seconds. It's right there. As for me, I don't know. I kind of think all U.S. airports are pretty much the same. I really like Seattle because when you fly in, or you fly in and out, you get a really beautiful view of the water and Mount Rainier. So I think in terms of views, that's just like you can't really beat that. Flying into Boston is great, too, flying over the water. But in terms of the U.S., I really don't distinguish. They're all kind of the same. Right, right. I would I would tend to agree with that. And I also do like the Seattle airport for that exact same reason. Same thing with Vancouver. Well, on the same topic of airports and flying, our next piece of news today is called, Could Virtual Windows in Airplane Cabins Be the Future of Aviation? I don't know, Tim. Can they? So... My initial thought there is that that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard for a number of reasons. A, windows allow natural light. That's one of the few things you don't have on a plane is anything natural. So taking those away immediately eliminates the one redeeming quality of an airplane. Two, why are you going to put in a virtual, uh, a virtual screen just to show the outside of the plane when you already have that, when you know the Earth is creating towards a impending shortage in rare earth minerals that are needed to make those screens? It's completely unnecessary. What are your thoughts, Evan? 
I was wondering if you're going to find a way to work rare earth minerals into this podcast. So well done. The idea behind these virtual windows is basically to remove windows from airplane cabins completely. So uh, to take away windows and just have these screens that create almost like a virtual reality experience. Uh, the idea is to have a, a, it says a futuristic experience with touchless controls and holograms. So not exactly sure what that would entail. They would probably be able to create like cool weather events, um, like a much more scenic view upon landing uh, than you might get if it's a cloudy day. So stuff like that. I think this whole idea must be conceived by people who had never flown before because the entire point of looking out of an airplane window is that you you feel like you are in you you know you're up in the air you're at 30,000 feet you're above the clouds you can physically see those clouds see the trees you can see the ground you can see everything the mountains it's part of the that is there is nothing more immersive than looking out of an airplane window however cloudy the day is however shitty the weather might be and knowing that that's the real scenery that you're seeing you are up there so creating making that virtually creating a virtual experience it's no different than just watching the TV screen in front of you and not even having a window at all. So I think the whole thing is very out of touch. Right. I, I agree. However, I will say that it's just occurred to me that the one redeeming quality of this, if it were to come to fruition, which I highly doubt it will, would be that for me, as somebody who always sits in the aisle seat, I'll be able to look out the window. But you'd still have to crane over the, the two people next to you. That's true. That's true. And the other thing is, so... So you have all these settings that you can choose what's displaying or you can choose the coloration of what it's showing out the window of the sky or whatever. What What is the point of that? And then you're just going to have 15 different views of the outside because everybody in the different rows is going to set their things to different settings. Right. And then, and then the person in the window seat has even more responsibility because they control what everyone in the row sees outside. If they want to see a thunderstorm, everyone's seen a thunderstorm that's power i wouldn't want to have personally right right and then you know you could it could be kind of funny though then you become the person that sits there and you just display your current mood on the screen so if you're upset or sad you put the thunderstorm <laughs> on or if you're like really excited you have like a beach bright blue sky scene going on you know like and then the window becomes like a little mood ring but nothing is going to lead to uh to arguments with the other people in your row faster than you trying to put a thunderstorm scene on outside the plane it would be funny if you're flying to a beach destination and everyone in the plane is like pumped to be on a tropical vacation and you put on an image uh, in the window of like the North Pole or something and everyone's just staring at you because right. you single-handedly killed their vibe. But yeah, I mean, actually, now that I think about it, I'm coming around on this. This is actually be kind of funny. Right. And you know what it reminds me of is it reminds me of two years ago, and you probably wrote about this, but the the idea of those half standing half sitting seats that went viral under the tag of oh this is what the seats could look like on your next flight no way that that would ever possibly happen because it would be the most uncomfortable thing in the world but it reminds me of that it's just a gimmick yeah people have these ideas all the time about how to improve the flying experience there really is no way to improve it flying sucks just take what we have be happy with it maybe improve the snacks a little bit but otherwise just leave it alone it's an unwinnable battle all right, well, that's a perfect way to close it. Thanks for listening to No Blackout Dates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm Evan Flow underscore on Instagram, and he is Tim Winger one We'll see you guys next week.